Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello out there, wherever you are in our wonderful country or anywhere around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I am happy, again, I'm just excited. We're able to get into areas uh, of real interest and things that are working around our country. So we're here for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. What is the Libertarian Way? Well, you know, it is invoking government not to favor the, the favored classes, but to have it favor all of us and to employ responsibility of all things, creeping responsibility, if that's all we can get, as well as, uh, uh, in, as well as freedom. And so that's what we're talking about. We have a wonderful subject to discuss today. Uh, it, this is the Institute for Justice. They are actually fighting for us uh, to, to protect our liberties uh, against the rather uh, sometimes bullish activities of government. And, the, and these are things that we really need to address. I can tell you that, my goodness, our, our, our liberties are so important to us. And we are so vulnerable because the governments or various organizations are organized and individuals are not. So there's a lot of bad stuff out there in the world, and we all know that. But there's a lot of good things happening as well. And one of those is called the Institute of Justice. It's a public interest law firm. They have attorneys, and I tell you, don't mess with these dudes, but they will really actively help us in so many different areas of our, of our world. Uh, one of them, in fact, was the economic liberty. We, we have so many impingements upon our economic uh, liberty by government. Uh, occupational licensing is so out of control that now, you know, we had a recent victory where a tour guide had to be registered, had to have a license by the government. Nonsense. If a tour guide has clients that come in to him or her, uh, let them be the judge of whether he's going to make it in business or not. Uh, you have problems with irrelevant criminal convictions, for example, uh, disqualifying people from being able to get jobs and getting different licenses. Institute for Justice takes care of that. Uh, do you really need, for example, a college degree in order to watch children at a daycare center? Well, there were some governments that were requiring a college degree for that purpose. Now, I just got a had to get a new eye prescription because I wanted the same contact lens prescription that I had before. Went to Costco, went to various other places. They couldn't give it to me unless I'd had a vision test by an optometrist within the last year. Wait a minute, whose decision should that be? Mine or the government's as to whether I'm comfortable and satisfied with my own prescription? No, I had to pay to have a new vision testing by the optometrist because, of course, they are vested interests. They have the ability of getting the government to order these things instead of us. So 
Maybe even the banning of technology might be unconstitutional. We're going to talk to the executive director, Scott Bullock, for the Institute of Justice, and I'm going to ask him, mark my words, is it unconstitutional to ban technology or not? IJ has taken a step in that. Uh, IJ has been representing some monks, as I understand it, at St. Joseph's Abbey in Louisiana uh, because the law prohibited them from making and selling caskets, just plain wooden caskets. Why? Well, because the casket industry was really well organized and they were able to freeze out any competition until the Institute for Justice came along. And uh, you may have heard talk about eminent domain, private property, where governments want to condemn your property, not because they're going to put a post office there or have a road go through, but frequently just because the local governments can make more money if they get rid of these lower income houses or other houses and they put in a shopping center. Oh, look at all of the sales tax that they can get. Has it been determined that no, that's inappropriate, that is not a constitutional work? Yes, it's been shown. Well, mostly, you probably heard of the Kelo decision, that's K-E-L-O, in which the lady in New London, Connecticut, uh, she just painted her house pink and it was the house of her life and she had cared for it and then all of a sudden New London, Connecticut was going to take that house for eminent domain for some shopping center or otherwise that went to all the way to the United States Supreme Court and I'm truly sorry to say uh, the Kilo lost. Well, lost kind of in parentheses because they won thereafter in public opinion and as a result of that lawsuit brought by the Institute of Justice, there are numbers of new state laws that would prohibit uh, any government from doing what the New London, Connecticut government had done. By the way, they made a movie out of that, I believe, Little Pink House. I've seen it and our guest, Scott Bullock, actually appeared in the firm, in the film. So, Scott, welcome to the program. Welcome to All Rise because if we use groups like the Institute for Justice, we will all rise together, maybe at the expense of big government, and uh, that's not going to bring tears to my eyes. So thank you for what you're doing, Scott. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Welcome to the program. It's great to be with you, Judge. Talk a little bit about our work. Well, (laughs) there's a lot to talk about, but uh, first, can you just give us your background a bit? Uh, I understand you were actually born in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Uh, Maybe you're your uh, parents were in the military. We'll, we'll ask you about that. You were raised, as I understand it, near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, got a law degree at the University of Pittsburgh, and joined uh, Institute for Justice at its inception, which was 1991. And then uh, you are the second president and general counsel just as of about uh, three years ago, I guess, of January of, 19, of uh, 2016. Uh, what Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in groups like the Institute for Justice and and leading the charge for for liberty for all of us. Well, it's something I've been interested in, the fight for individual rights and individual liberty, uh, ever since really I was in high school. And I started reading the usual uh, suspects uh, when it came to that, people like Milton Friedman and 
Ayn Rand and Thomas Saws and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and, and other uh, great uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, other great freedom fighters, and uh, it said that I want to do something uh, uh, about this. I want to be able to stand up for people's rights and to fight government abuses. And I thought um, in, uh, about this. I had majored in economics in, in uh, undergrad and, and studied in free market economics and Austrian economics. But I always thought the law was a great way of being able to have principles and vindicate certain constitutional principles and, st- and being able to do something about it. So you weren't just writing about it or speaking about it, however important those might be. As a lawyer, you can go into court and challenge these abuses on behalf of real people whose rights are being violated, and then uh, also to set a precedent that can uh, impact not only those people, but hopefully protect thousands of other people in similar settings. So uh, I had kind of an eye toward doing that. Um, I worked at the Cato Institute and for one of the co-founders of IJ while I was in law school. I never signed up for for a job interview at a law firm or went on, <laughs> on an interview for that. I really wanted to do constitutional law for a living. And I was fortunate that, um, that I got to know uh, Clint Bullock, who's now Justice Bullock on the Arizona Supreme Court, uh, when I was in law school and worked for him. And uh, he told me about a new group that he was founding with an old friend of his, Chip Meller, and uh, asked me to be the third lawyer at this true startup called the Institute for Justice. And I graduated from law school in 91, took the bar that summer, and IJ opened its doors in September of 91. And I've been there ever since. Scott, I tell young people, what are you interested in? Analyze this. Look inside you. What are you interested? What do you like to do? And then find a way to support yourself by doing what you like. It sounds to me like you've been very successful in that regard. You've had this calling and uh, you'll be able to uh, support yourself in doing it. Right on? That's right. You know, it's it's wonderful to be able to pursue what you're passionate about, uh, what really motivates you. I tell younger people that uh, all the time uh, as well. And um, you, if you're really committed to it, you can oftentimes find a way uh, uh, to do it. And uh, it's been great to be able to be at IJ from its very beginning when we were a true startup, and we didn't really have many cases, and really nobody knew who we were, and governments didn't take us very seriously, and we had to build up our track record, one hard-fought case at a time. Uh, but thankfully, we were able to do that. Um, we have now established a, a, a formidable track record, and governments know what they're going to face uh, when, when we file a lawsuit. And um, I, I was able to take over as president of IJ in, um, in 2016, as, as you mentioned, and uh, lead us on into the next uh, 25 years uh, or so. So it's just been a wonderful experience, and I'm happy to report that IJ is growing, and uh, both in our influence and, and our numbers, and government, of course, at all levels, federal, state, and local, keeps us very busy. And uh, you have to have a skilled at skilled advocates uh, in court to vindicate people's rights, and then also you need to have people like our clients who are willing to stand up for their rights, and that's what the Constitution needs every. Uh, generation are people that will give life to its words, both uh, defenders in court and even perhaps more importantly, people, uh, the average citizens that are willing to take these types of stands. 
I understand that Thomas Jefferson once said, after we passed the Constitution, that our country is going to need a violent revolution or a bloody revolution every generation to keep the special interests at bay. Fortunately, the Constitution gives us the, the means of doing it without it being a bloody revolution. But people like you are the ones that keep government accountable because government is a very large special interest and they will keep wandering forward. Uh, we can talk about numbers of things and we will on this show, but you are helping to keep government accountable and that's got to feel really good. Well, it does and, and, and it's something that's absolutely necessary because you're right, the, the, the government officials need to be bound by uh, the restraints in the Constitution. That's why we have a Constitution. That's why we have an independent judiciary in order to enforce those limits that are in the Constitution. And you're right, if those, if those words were given meaning and effect, then, um, then we, government uh, would be restrained and we would not have the abuses that you see on so many of levels of government today. Tell us about the Kilo situation, how it came about, uh, fill in the blanks a little bit, and we'll talk about your Little Pink House movie thereafter. Sure. Well, you know, part of uh, the work of the Institute for Justice, and should just start off by saying that we, we focus on four fundamental freedoms. Uh, the right to earn an honest living, free of unreasonable interference, uh, the right to own and use property, the right to educate your children as you, uh, as you see fit, and the right to speak your mind about political and commercial matters. And those are four really important and essential freedoms, kind of almost the tenets of the American can dream, but they are woefully underprotected by the courts. And that is part of the mission of the Institute for Justice is to revive these essential rights to, uh, to make sure that they are given their appropriate protection under the Constitution. And uh, central to that is the protection of private property rights. And uh, one of the issues that we had litigated for a number of years is um, what you had mentioned previously, eminent domain abuse. Uh, eminent domain is one of the most powerful things that the government has at its disposal, apart from putting you in jail or maybe executing you, the ability to take away your home, to take away your business, to take away your land, is, uh, is something that can be so easily abused. So the founders put limits uh, in the Constitution. They recognize that sometimes the government can take your property, but under the takings clause, they said that property can only be taken for public use. And then if they do take it for public use, they have to pay you. They have to provide just compensation. Uh, so that is, are the words in the Constitution. Unfortunately, over the past 50 to 60 years, uh, governments got away from those words in the Constitution and said, well, yes, it says public use, but let's take a broader interpretation of public use and to really say that that means public benefit and public purpose. And so uh, the idea was is that we could take property from one private owner, hand it over to another private owner, which doesn't sound like public use, that sounds like private use, but justify it on these supposed grounds of increasing the tax revenue and improving the economy and creating jobs. And so uh, this had been happening for a number of years, and uh, a lot of times lawyers in private practice had sort of just given up on it and said, well, you know, we'll try to get you some more money for your property, but we can't fight these types of condemnations. And so that's one of the reasons why a group like the Institute for Justice exists 
cases that take on these uphill battles to try to change the law, to move the law in a certain direction. So we took on a whole series of cases to challenge uh, these these abuses. And uh, New London was one of the most prominent ones that we took on. And that was a case where the government was taking land, not for a road or a bridge or a military base or something like that, but to give to a private developer in the hope that this private, de- this private development would improve the economy of New London. And there was a group of property owners in the uh, historic Fort Trumbull neighborhood of New London, uh, led by Suzette Kilo and her little pink house, who did not want to move and uh, said, I, I don't want to get compensation for this. I want to stay here. This is the place that's important to me. This is where I built my life and invested my dreams. And it's a wonderful spot by the water, and I get to look out and afford this on a, on, on a, a medical technician's salary. And, and, you know, and people, a lot of people there lived there for a long time and simply did not want to move. And so uh, we waged this case and a number of other cases throughout the uh, 1990s and 2000s got it up before the Supreme Court, and as you had mentioned in your intro, we lost that case uh, by five to four vote, which was uh, you know, just really uh, unbelievable. And I think a vast majority of people in the country uh, understood that, that this was something that they could not believe could happen in a country that's supposed to value private property rights. And it was a case that everybody understood, and everybody looked at Suzette's little house and said, well, that's my house, or that's my, that's my grandmother's house. And, you know, if the government can take the property from Suzette, they could take it from me. So one of the things that we do as a public interest organization is we don't just argue in the court of law, but in the court of public opinion and use the, all the other tools of public interest law, of having a very active communication strategy and grassroots activism and strategic research and legislative um, uh, uh, campaign. So even if we have a setback in court like we did with Suzette, we have built awareness of this issue to such a great degree that um, you can really still change things for the better. And that's what happened in the wake of the Kelo case. Even though the Supreme Court got it horribly wrong, there was still a lot of good that came out of this uh, appalling uh, decision. And uh, we've uh, now had a situation where our work on eminent domain is actually declined uh, because of that backlash against Kilo, but it's something that we always have to monitor because, as Thomas Jefferson also wrote, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, and you can never just kind of cross your arms and say, well, you know, I guess our fight is done here. You always have to make sure that governments and private parties don't slip back into their old ways. Boy, that's forever sure, Scott. And of course, that'll be a never-ending fight. Uh, I've never liked zero-tolerance laws for drugs, for example, in schools because they're they're arbitrary. And, oh, that's just the, the way this is done until daddy shows up with a lawyer and then all of a sudden they, they, they cave. What is happening here is the Institute for Justice is helping people like Ms. Kilo show up with a lawyer, and you're just championed by Scott Bullock. We're going to hear some more examples of uh, what IJ, the Institute for Justice, is doing to help us all in a minute after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray, and we are all Americans, or Americans all, rallying together. There are a lot of bad things happening in the world, as we know, but there are a lot of good things happening, too, and we focus on them a lot in this show so that we can all rise together. Uh, One of them is the Institute for Justice. It's been a public center law firm uh, to protect us from the encroachment of government since 1991, and our current executive director and general counsel Scott Bullock is our guest today. Scott, we've been talking about eminent domain law. Uh, You also have, as I understand it, fairly recently filed a case in Chicago uh, with regard to them, the city, impounding numbers of vehicles. Uh, It's a a program type of thing. You said something like in 2017, 22,000 vehicles were impounded in Chicago. And of course, that brings enormous costs to people and brings in a lot of revenue to government. Tell us about that case a little bit. Sure. Well, this this was a case that grew out of our work and sort of the next generation of work we've been doing on private property rights. You know, in the wake of the Kelo decision, uh, uh, we actually were able to cut back on our work on eminent domain abuse because of the changes that were fostered by that law. But that got us involved in challenging another power uh, many listeners will uh, have heard of that's um, another just terrible abuse of private property rights, and that's civil forfeiture. And that's the ability of government to take your property regardless of your guilt or innocence and uh, and because the property was somehow connected to illegal activity. This is oftentimes driven by a desire to obtain revenue as opposed to protect 
uh, public health and safety. And that's unfortunately what you see in so many other situations now. And our work on civil forfeiture has also um, branched off into um, our work challenging abusive fines and fees schemes that are proliferating throughout the country. And this is, again, an attempt by government not to protect public health and safety, which can be a legitimate function of government, but really just to shake down its citizens and look for new uh, sources of of revenue. So this has been happening in places uh, throughout the country. And we have uh, uh, put together, um, as part of our public interest work, a program to fight back against these these schemes. And uh, we did a case outside of uh, St. Louis in the Pagedale area, which was near Ferguson. And this is something that folks remember the what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, and the and the tensions and the riots that ensued there. Um, one of the after in looking at that, and actually the Department of Justice and others had uh, looked at what some of the causes of that were. And um, one of the primary focuses was the an abusive fines and fees schemes that led people into debt and then had warrants out for their arrest and created enormous tension between the police and the citizens of of, of that city. Same thing was happening in a, in a, a city uh, down the uh, road from uh, Ferguson called Pagedale, where over 25% of the municipal budget was raised through fining people and fining citizens in a relatively small uh, city. And as I said, this is happening all over the country, and probably many of your listeners have encountered this, and it's something that uh, we are determined to fight back against. And Chicago's a, a great example of this, and we just filed a lawsuit uh, challenging uh, this, where they are impounding uh, cars with very little regard for due process, uh, and even taking the cars of wholly innocent uh, people as well. Uh, we represent somebody whose uh, car, when it was at a shop, was used by one of the employees there. The car, uh, he was pulled over, he was driving on a suspended license, and their car was taken. They couldn't get it back until they paid thousands of dollars in in fees uh, for it. Um, So, again, it's not the government looking to protect the public. It's just ways of finding, um, uh, ways of shaking people down. And our point is is that, uh, you know, every fine of an innocent person is excessive. And thankfully, there is a protection in the Constitution, in the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, that prohibits excessive fines. And that is something because of a Supreme Court case we won earlier this year, the Tim's case, which was a civil forfeiture case, but impacted our work on uh, fines and fee schemes. We're able to use that precedent now to put some very clear limits on government's ability to excessively fine people. And this is another part of the Constitution that has been woefully uh, uninterpreted and has not been given a lot of of of, of life um, until very recently, and now we are going to take this Tim's precedent and apply it to Chicago and apply it to cities and other governments throughout the country. Well, Scott, uh, again, thank you for what the Institute for Justice is doing. If people want more information, how can they contact you? How can they learn a little bit more uh, about what's going on? Sure. The best way, we've got a really easy website to remember. Uh, we have one of those uh, two-letter domain names. It's ij.org. 
and from there you can find us on Facebook and all the social media platforms uh, as well. But there's a lot more information about our cases, about um, how you can get in contact with us. If you have a potential case, we always invite people if, if they, um, they feel like um, this is an area that, uh, that we uh, can help them with. There's a potential case form on there that you can fill out and, and let, let us know your, your situation uh, and other ways of, of supporting our work. Yes, and this is a, a volunteer thing. You, you're not paid for your efforts by your, by your clients. I, I've, when I was on the bench, I started to see it uh, the, the traffic laws were beginning to be used as revenue-generating uh, avenues for for cities, and that our justice system is not supposed to be, not designed to be, in a, in, in wrong and trying just to use for for generating revenue, and it's evolved as you're saying into the asset forfeiture type things. Uh, we saw that with regard to the civil asset forfeiture, with regard to drugs, uh, it was called policing for profit, and for a while it was just really rampant, and and the, there was no money actually accounted for. That People in law enforcement were throwing big parties for themselves and the rest. I don't mean to demean law enforcement, but without accountability, bad things start happening. And then you get Institute for Justice and groups like that stepping in. Tell us a little bit with regard to the war on drugs and this policing for profit, how IJ has been involved. Right. Well, that became, uh, as I said, one of the, a major part of our work, uh, uh, protecting private property rights because we saw civil forfeiture like eminent domain abuse as one of the greatest assaults on private property rights. But it's one of these powers that people, most people can't believe exists in, in America. You know, the, when you tell people uh, the government can take your property without charging, not, not only not convicting you, but sometimes without even charging you with a crime, people find it astonishing. And when you first tell them about it, they can't believe it. Um, but this is because of our work and uh, some work of uh, other groups. This is um, really uh, the profile of this has been raised. There's been, thankfully, reforms of civil forfeiture laws in several states, but much more work needs to be done because, um, as you said, this is not a matter of a couple of bad cops or law enforcement officials out there. The problem is the law itself. The way civil forfeiture laws are written, they create these perverse incentives. Uh, because under the federal law and law of most states, the money goes right back to the people that are out there uh, enforcing the law. And that is a really dangerous thing to do. You're giving law enforcement officials, executive branch officials, the ability to raise revenue, which is a classic legislative function of government. The people's representatives are supposed to uh, be able to, uh, are supposed to set the revenue for it. But forfeiture allows executive branch officials, police, prosecutors, and others to go out and essentially self-finance their own activities. And when that occurred, you saw forfeiture skyrocket in use. And it has led to terrible deprivations of people's property where people's uh, cars are seized, their homes are seized. And one of the favorite things, too, that, that you see are, are, is cash that is seized from uh, individuals routinely, especially on our highways. And we had several cases now challenging this in, in airports. So you're absolutely right, Judge. The uh, law enforcement and the judicial system should not be about revenue generation. It should be about the fair and impartial administration of justice. And through our cases, that's what we're trying to get it back toward. 
Sure. You know, if you have institutional abuse, it's just really hard to grapple with that. And it starts small. Uh, I've been looking into a lot of the asset forfeitures, and a lot of times it would happen in the inner cities where some police would say, well, let me look at your wallet. And they'd, some guy would have $140 in there, and the police would look at each other and take it and say, well, this probably very likely came from a drug, drug deal. So they'd just take the money. No accountability. And then what has to happen is this person would have to affirmatively file a lawsuit in court to get their $140 back. Well, that's not going to happen, and the police know it. So it's the little guys frequently that have this occur. And then you get into other institutional abuse. Here in Orange County, California, where I was working for a long time, still am, uh, the first line of defense, if you felt that your property was taken wrongfully, the first line of offense was to file a report at the district attorney's office and have the district attorney investigate it. Well, that sounds fine conceptually, but the law provided that 10% of the seizures would go to the district attorney's office. Hey, that's kind of a conflict of interest, and if you don't think that that played into it just from a human standpoint, so we need to have that accountability at all levels of society. That's the libertarian way, to have accountability, responsibility at all levels of government, certainly individual, but also corporate, and certainly also government. So that's what Institute for Justice has been doing. They represent us against the organized people, uh, and, and that's critically important. Thank, thank you for doing that. You, you get into others. We're talking about just economic freedom, being able to earn a living, an occupation. And I was horrified when I saw this statistic, Scott, that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, about 5% of all occupations were required to have a government license in order to do it. Now it's more like 25%. So we were talking earlier, you have to get a, a college degree in order to watch children at a daycare center, or uh, you have these various other requirements to be a Tree trimmer, you have to get a license from the government. I know Institute for Justice is taking those on as well. Tell us about a little bit of that action. Yeah, that's right. It's another major part of our work is is fighting for economic liberty, the right to earn an honest living. And uh, a lot of that work is geared toward challenging these uh, occupational licensing schemes, uh, where oftentimes people think, well, licenses, is that just to, there so people can, uh, you know, make the public knows that you're qualified for it? Uh, not usually. Uh, and what they've actually turned into is almost a guild system like they would have in medieval times, where um, the established industry has captured government power, and the licensing system is not used to, uh, to protect the public, but is used to exclude newcomers from coming into the marketplace, which, of course, limits the supply and drives up the price for the people that are already in the marketplace. And it is something that has grown uh, so significantly over the years. It's, uh, it, as you said, now affects a significant part of the workforce. It's actually more, a lot of people uh, talk about unions and minimum wage laws. This is actually more, occupational licensing is more significant than those who are in unions and people who earn minimum wage combined. So it, it, it impacts a significant portion of the American American workforce, and it's something that interferes with people's ability to, uh, to earn an honest living. And so we've taken on a whole series of cases over the years that, um, that challenge this. And 
What we look for there is to say, listen, is this really about protecting public health and safety? If the licensing requirements are geared toward that, then we couldn't challenge them and we wouldn't challenge them and we would, uh, would not be successful in court. But if it's about economic protectionism, if it's about really just protecting um, the interests of the established industry, then that's wrong. It's something that uh, should not exist in, in a country that's based upon open markets and competition. And that is where we've been focused our, uh, focused our economic liberty work. And so we've taken on everything from taxicab licensing in the early days before uh, the ride-sharing technology completely blew up and blew open that marketplace to hair braiders, to, the, um, to casket retailers that, that you had mentioned in, in your opening, uh, and even to more sophisticated clients uh, now, too, in the medical field, which is another area that's rife with um, lack of competition and lack of consumer choices and desperately needs market forces to be introduced into it. Well, sure. And and you mentioned the taxi industry and the rest, which they, they have a vested interest, and I don't blame them. When they see Uber coming in or Lyft or these various other companies bringing in new technology, oh, wait a minute, let's go to court. Let's keep them from being able to compete with us. Uh, no, not a good idea. Sometimes technology simply happens. Uh, you can look at what the digital cameras did for Kodak Film, by the way, and sure, I mean, Kodak wasn't pleased by that, but it, if technology evolves and using the law to keep that evolution from happening simply is wrong. Tell us a little bit about, though, the monks of St. Joseph Abbey in Louisiana. Uh, tell us about that case with the wooden caskets. Sure. Well, that was one that just epitomized everything we're talking about here. Uh, that was a case that I had the great pleasure of representing a, a group of Benedictine monks outside of uh, New Orleans in Covington, Louisiana. And they, for over 100 years, had made handmade uh, casket, wooden caskets for their brethren. And actually, they made them for um, any uh, kind of Catholic um, uh, officiant that, that passed away, including bishops. And uh, they were beautiful, simple, and um, after a, a couple of bishops in southeastern Louisiana passed away, uh, people at the services that were attending them said, that casket's different than what I thought. I would think it would be very ornate and, and have a lot of you know, gold on it and that sort of thing, and it's just a simple wooden box. And um, who made those? And so, well, the brothers made those. And could I get one of those for my family members? And, and monks, uh, you know, have always been entrepreneurs. Uh, they have very modest needs, but over the years they've baked bread, they've brewed beer, they've farmed land because they have to pay for the, um, for the modest expenses of, of their monastery. So they've always looked for ways to raise money. So like all good entrepreneurs, they said, hey, we already know how to do this. Um, let's start offering this for sale. And people would like it. They like the idea that the monks are making them. They're praying when they're making them. It's, it's um, for people who you know, are part of the church. And, uh, and then we can raise some money for our monastery. So they started doing this. The first month that they offered these for sale, they were contacted by the Louisiana State Board of Embalmers and Funeral Directors. Uh, there's nine-member board, state board in uh, Louisiana, eight of whom are, you guessed it, licensed funeral directors. And they told the monks What a that, coincidence. 
Uh, what, what a coincidence. You must, be, that, you must be really <laughs> cynical, Mr. Bullock. That's right. You know, and you see this over and over again, is that the, the, industry, the, the uh, regulatory agencies are captured by the industry that they're regulating and oftentimes constitute uh, the, the government uh, agency for it. So yeah. uh, they issued a cease and desist letter and said that to sell a casket, which is really just a box, you need to be a licensed funeral director in Louisiana, which means you have to go to school for a year. You have to be an apprentice. You have to have embalming facilities and basically be a funeral establishment in order to sell a casket for it. And the monks, we don't want to do any of that. We just want to sell the casket. And uh, and it, so then course, they ran into Institute for Justice, who came to the rescue. When we come back, because there's so much to talk about, Scott, and thank you again for this with the Institute for Justice. We're going to talk about educational choice, which I view as something truly misunderstood around the nation and really around the world. And we're going to talk about that in the Institute of Justice when we come back just after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. So welcome back after those messages. We are all Americans, and we're on the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray and my special, truly special guest, Scott Bullock, an attorney, the executive director for Institute for Justice, which is doing marvelous work for all of us against the vested interests, which frequently, of course, are in control of government. We were just hearing that about the the embalmers and, and uh, casket makers, they get their hands into this and then they control the government and the rest. And then Institute for Justice comes in and protects our economic ability to make a, jo- make a living. 
And by the way, people also use these devices requiring licenses to step on folks that have served time in prison. They're, they're out finally. They need to have a job, but they don't even qualify for those licenses if, in fact, they have a prior conviction, which is, again, just harming everyone in society. Responsibility is important. But let's talk about an area which is just, I think, vastly misunderstood in our country today. And that is we have a lot of schools that are failing our children. And I had educational choice when I was raising my children. We'd move into a, an area, neighborhood that, oh, it has good schools. Well, the property values were a little higher, uh, property costs, but schools was, was really important. Or if you didn't like those schools, you could afford, I could afford to send my child to a private school. But if you're in the lower economic areas, you do not have that choice. And what happens frequently is that teachers in good schools that can't teach uh, pretty soon get filtered out because the parents will not allow their children to be taught by that that teacher. So they are, in effect, pushed into schools in which are in lower economic areas, frequently areas of people of color, and those are the areas in a large part that are failing our students, which is an abomination. If you would allow teacher, excuse me, allow parents to choose where their money would be spent, their government money would be spent for the education of their children, they would choose excellence. And most of the time, they would receive it. But there's a great deal of, of, of resistance of that. And then comes Institute for Justice with Scott Bullock, our guest. Scott, what is Institute for Justice doing with regard to that really critically important educational choice issue? Well, it's a key part of our work uh, as well as is that we defend educational choice programs that have been passed. And um, we do two things basically with that. We, uh, once these programs are being considered by a legislature, we uh, help craft them and uh, write the language and do the research to bulletproof the programs as much as possible from the inevitable lawsuits that are going to flow after the programs are passed. And so once those programs are passed, uh, then we um, step in and intervene in the case, uh, because usually it's, um, it's the government that's the defendant in the case, but we intervene on behalf of the true beneficiaries of the program, the parents and the kids that want to take advantage of the choice that uh, these these uh, programs have opened up, and on the other side, unfortunately, it's usually the teachers' unions that have fought uh, uh, educational choice tooth and nail. Every time a program is passed, it's it's almost a certainty that it will be challenged, and so we step in and defend uh, these programs from the whole panoply of legal attacks uh, that the teachers' unions uh, uh, put up. and And you're absolutely right, Judge. This is something that um, uh, wealthier Americans exercise uh, all the time in deciding where to send their kids to, to school. But what you have in some of the most troubled districts is a captive market market where people don't have the ability to move to another neighborhood or afford a private uh, school. And so the quality of the product when you have a captive market is usually not good. 
And that's exactly what you see playing out in public school systems, largely in inner city neighborhoods throughout the country. And the whole idea behind school choice is that once you empower parents to exercise choice in the way that wealthier parents do all the time, then there's greater accountability and greater power on the part of parents and families. And that is what the educational system desperately needs. And it's really kind of shocking in a country like ours that um, where you go to school is determined simply by your zip code. And if you don't happen to live in a, in a wealthy area, then you're subjected typically to a very low quality uh, public education. You know, oftentimes there's people pointing out that, you know, Sweden being used as a model and, you know, we ought to be more like Sweden uh, for, well, with regards to choice and to, and to education, we should be more like Sweden because Sweden is supposedly a, 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 a democratic socialist country. It actually has a welfare state, as you know, but, you know, it actually has a, a market economy uh, in, in a large degree uh, to it, just with significant uh, transfer payments uh, uh, as part of, uh, of some part of society. But the one thing that they do have have is school choice, and Swedish parents are allowed to choose the school that best meets the needs of their kids, and this has become such a part of, um, accepted part of Swedish society that there's virtually no opposition to it, even from some of the parties on the left. They agree that this is something that should happen, and it is still very controversial in, in the U.S., and so we are the legal defenders of uh, these choice programs um, that uh, that are passed and that hopefully will continue to uh, to spread uh, in, in places throughout the country that desperately need it. That, that's sensational and critically important of all things. Uh, I first learned of school choice back in 1993 where I was at a drug policy uh, seminar with Milton Friedman. And during a recess, uh, he was talking about school choice. And I said, well, Dr. Friedman, you know, I'm a product of public schools. I don't want to do anything to harm the public schools. So, so tell me more. And he said, Jim, let me ask you two questions. The first question is, if you are the parent of a high school age child, where in the world would you want your child to go to get the best education that he or she probably could? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but probably not the United States of America. He said, I agree with you. My second question is, if you're the parent of a college-age child, where in the country or the world would you want your child to go to get the best education he or she could? And I said, well, again, I'm not sure, but probably it would be the United States of America. He said, I agree with you on that as well. The difference is you can choose where the money is going to be spent for your college education. You mostly cannot for high schools. And I was converted to school choice at that moment and still remain such. And then you get other examples like Germany. You mentioned Sweden, but Germany has been enormously successful in having vocational schools. Look, you know, it may be that not everybody should be a professor of economics or an engineer, that maybe they'd like to be an auto mechanic or be an electrician or, or plumber. Go to a vocational school and the parents are able to see that. They could, instead of a high school on a regular curriculum, they could go and become a mechanic or whatever. Let the parents choose. Where, Scott Bullock of Institute for Justice, where in the country are we, do we see really viable and successful educational choice uh, areas? What states, what cities right now in our country? 
Well, a number of states have, have adopted these, um, and Indiana has a, a robust uh, choice program, as does Georgia uh, right now. Um, and there's, uh, there's places that have ones that are limited in some ways by income or sometimes by disability uh, for it. And what's also great to see, too, is that um, there's much more experimentation with um, choice programs. There's, there's the traditional vouchers, which was kind of the Friedman idea, which is the education dollars attached to the parents, and rather than sending it to a bureaucracy, it goes to the parents, and then the parents get to choose how they spend those uh, those dollars at the school of their choice. There's education savings accounts, which is another Friedman-like model where um, the money goes to the parents, and parents can use it even if you're homeschooling your child. You can use a certain share of the educational dollars to maybe uh, uh, hire a tutor for the child or uh, get more textbooks uh, for, for, for your kid. Again, it's empowering parents to make these choices. Other states have tax credit uh, programs uh, as well, which um, where there's scholarship funds and people are able to um, get tax credits uh, when they make uh, charitable contributions to the program. So there's a whole range of them. But what needs to happen is they need to be expanded because even in states that have more robust ones like Georgia and, and Indiana, and North Carolina also has one too, they are still limited and we have not seen a universal program or ones that would impact uh, people from throughout the entire state. Nevada uh, had passed a a statewide education savings account program. Uh, Unfortunately, that was uh, struck down because of a particular funding issue. Uh, Hopefully that will get back into Nevada that uh, will allow that state to have a statewide uh, program with it. Um, But what you oftentimes face is significant political opposition uh, by largely teachers' unions uh, against these, uh, and they're very difficult to get to get passed. So uh, hopefully that um, uh, that will change as um, the success of the programs uh, uh, are seen, and then also as the legal barriers to choice start falling. And that's one of the things that we're determined to do. We have a petition right now um, uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and this is a, kind of a long story, probably beyond the, the scope of this program, but one of the favorite tools that the teachers' unions use to challenge this are Blaine amendments that are in state constitutions uh, that um, that greatly limit the ability of, of folks to choose a whole variety of, of schools, including religious schools. And um, the Supreme Court has become much more skeptical of these Blaine amendments, and we have a petition now before the court that will hopefully remove this barrier to choice and to further expand the educational options of, of, uh, of families. Critically important issue for our country, as critical really as any I know. And I, I understand that we have seen in New York City uh, the almost logical extreme of this protectionism by the, the school union, the teachers' unions. And that is that in 2017, I understand that the school districts in New York City spent something on the order of eight or nine million dollars simply to pay teachers not to teach, that they were deemed to be so unhelpful or counterproductive in the classrooms that they actually were just segregated 
went into a gymnasium and were paid full teacher salaries to play bridge or to read a book or just to talk with each other because it was deemed it would be help more helpful not to have them in the classroom than it would be to be there, which is just pretty naked. It's just not what things should do. So who are the winners under a school choice program? Well, it's certainly the children, but also Scott Bullock, it's the good teachers. You know, if I am a teacher in a, and doing a good job and you have a school district over there and you know that they're not, my school district's not paying me enough money, you can lure me over to your district and incentives again work. And a lot of teachers, I, I respect teachers enormously. It's a wonderful profession, a gifting profession, but some of them kind of get lazy and they know full well if they can't be fired, eh, why should I go the extra mile? I'll just put my feet up on the desk and kind of let things happen because no one can fire me. But if you're back into the school choice issue, some of these tending more to be lazier teachers will actually go back and do the job that they're supposed to do. So, so again, this is the libertarian way of having responsibility, of having accountability, as enforced by Scott Bullock and his Institute for Justice. Thank you for all of that. Uh, I was also, Scott, Actually, as you may know, I ran for vice president of the United States as a libertarian in 2012. Uh, I came in third, by the way. Yes, it was a distant third, but it was kind of embarrassing because I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, going through my discussion about school choice, and my it was. I forgot where I was because the people in the audience started kind of waving their hands at me saying, Judge Gray, we, we don't have any bad schools anymore. We've had school <laughs> choice now for about eight to ten years, and all the bad schools have, have reformed or gone out of business. And I expect that you have seen something similar to that. Is that right? Because it does work. Absolutely. And, and what you see, too, are parents feeling that they are truly empowered for the first time as well and being really satisfied with the ability to uh, both make those choices and to, to know that they've had a role in that uh, then, too. And that's something you see certainly with, with choice programs or, or, or parents and families for the first time feeling like they actually have a say in, in something that before then was, was left completely up to a bureaucrat's choice. Well, and let's also understand that as a practical matter, there are some parents that may not care that much or won't really be that influenced or caring about their child's education. Okay, and I acknowledge that. But there is also, Scott, the, the what I call the coattail effect, that if my, say I'm a parent and I don't really care that much or don't follow it too much, but my kids play with some people, some kids across the street, and their parents do care, and they're going to send their children to another school, my kids are going to want to go to that school with their friends. So there will be that kind of coattail effect as well. Everyone wins, in my opinion, except teachers that cannot teach. Maybe they should be doing something else, but I'm not crying crocodile tears for them. And again, thank you for, for what you're doing and pursuing this wonderful thing. Uh, Milton Friedman, I think, pr pretty much started. Uh, do you have any cases right now that Institute for Justice is working on as to school choice, I'm assuming? Yes, we we have a number of them that that we're doing right now. As I said, the the one the big one is um, the case that we have uh, out of Montana, where the Montana Supreme Court had actually overturned their state's modest uh, tax credit program that they've set up for uh, school choice, uh, and so um, that is an issue that uh, we have before the Supreme Court on this Blaine Amendment issue that, that I had mentioned. We're probably going to get a decision on whether the court is going to hear that case by the end of June, and. So 
so that will be a really big case if the court takes that up. That would be argued in the next term uh, of of the Supreme Court. Uh, but that's something you know we're always looking for those opportunities to get cases as high as they can go, whether it's in the uh, federal courts or in in the state courts, and then ultimately on to the uh, to the Supreme Court for hopefully get the court to do the right thing. But as we talked about previously in the Kelo case, even with the, if there's a setback in court because of the other tools that we have in public interest law, we can hopefully effectuate some significant change. Well, Scott, it seems to me that the, the argument ultimately is going to be successful. I believe in the separation of church and state, and I don't want the government to be funding one religion or any religions for those reasons. But here, conceptually, it's quite a bit different. The, the governments are not spending the money. The parents are choosing and spending the money, which is quite a differentiation, which I think should really help Institute for Justice as to those Blaine Amendment uh, issues. Definitely right, because as long as the program is neutral and it's up to the parents and any school can participate, religious, non-religious, secular, private school, uh, public school, uh, charter school, whatever it might be, as long as it's, uh, the program is open to all and the parent it represents that independent choice, it should not be a violation of, of, of separation of church and state. And the U.S. Supreme Court under the federal Constitution has already held that, and hopefully the Supreme Court will, will remove this these Blaine amendments from being used as a tool to try to stop uh, uh, these choices. Scott Bullock, Institute for Justice, since 1991, you have just been doing wonderful things to uphold our liberties for the, for the common man, for the, those that are not organized. We thank you on behalf of the country. I thank you. You're, you're doing just marvelous work. Uh, the, so, the school choice, critically important. The economic liberty, just, just, Think about it as our listeners think about the importance of being able to, to act if your own economic liberty using your own incentives. Uh, the eminent domain, the power of government is just huge in this. And we hadn't talked that much about the First Amendment with regard to uh, uh, various infringements upon our freedom of speech. But you get the idea. Go to IJ.org, the most straightforward website I think I've ever heard, IJ standing for Institute for Justice. So there you have it. You know, Scott Bullock, again, thank you for taking the time to share these wonderful, in increasingly wonderful uh, businesses with us. Uh, in many ways, you know, the libertarian approach works of what? Responsibility, liberty, individual accountability at all levels of government. Because we are here on all rise, libertarian way with Judge Jim Gray, talking about these issues, batting them back and forth. No, there are no easy answers, but sometimes, folks, there really are. And it is individual accountability and choice. And that's where we are. So tune in again next time at the same time, at 7 o'clock Pacific time on Friday mornings and 10 o'clock Eastern and all around the world for We Are Americans All. This is All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. We're tune in again. We'll talk to you soon. In the meantime, life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.